Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivrivani. We've heard many stories on Raise the Line about patients and their family members who, upon getting a rare disease diagnosis, build a nonprofit organization from scratch to boost advocacy and research for the condition in question. This is obviously a pretty big hill to climb for people with no background in such things. Well, today we're going to learn about a nonprofit designed to help provide the expertise and support needed to get a rare disease patient group off the ground and to connect these groups with each other for the purpose of mutual education and support. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Rick Thompson, who's the CEO of Beacon for Rare Diseases in Cambridge in the United Kingdom. Beacon was co-founded by one of our previous guests, Nick Thoreau, whose two sons were born with the ultra-rare genetic condition alcaptonuria, also known as black bone disease. Dr. Thompson has a background in evolutionary biology, research and education, and in his current work, he's particularly interested in the issue of drug repurposing for rare diseases. So Rick, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. No, thank you guys. Really excited to chat and get the invite. So uh, we like to start by asking our guests to just ex- explain their own words about their background. So in your case, what first got you interested in natural sciences and evolutionary biology? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think biology was always one of those subjects I just really enjoyed right right from back in the school days. I, I like that connection between science and, and the life that you see as a person, right? You can you can connect the scientific things you're learning about to your own body, to the processes you're seeing in the world, and some of those quite interesting things that are happening in the in the world around us. So I think I always want to follow that through. And that led me to, to natural sciences at university, which let me keep things quite open. You know, I really liked all the different types of biology. And I thought I was going to go, you know, all off into biochemistry and uh, and genetics, because that's the thing that, that really attracted me early on. Um, but then I kind of wound up at university and, and began to take a few courses in evolution. And it was a fascinating topic that, that kind of embraced the history of, of biology, the, where everything came from and why why things work the way they work. And that was really exciting. There's a kind of a storytelling arc to it as well, a narrative that, that I always uh, found really appealing. And it you know, brought back that that love of dinosaurs as a four-year-old, you know, that, that kind of thing kind of that threw into it as well. So, I, I, yeah, I find it a fascinating topic that, that explains why we're here as well as how it works, which I think was great. Yeah, 100%. I agree. And, and um, you know, it was a nice intersection of actual hardcore science the biology the genetics uh, as well as just you know sociocultural aspects as you mentioned you know why did people migrate to where they did and how that impact their genetics over time yeah absolutely and it all it all feeds into this really complex way which is great and end up doing this very complex uh multidisciplinary kind of phd route which had you know things from paleontology through into molecular genetics and you know to combine that together was quite exciting so yeah that, that that's where it came from and i think it's uh remains a very exciting thing to learn about every now and again Totally. That's fascinating. I would love to learn more about that. Um, so now switching gears to rare diseases, obviously I can see how that gave you a good background in ultimately being able to contribute to rare diseases, but what got you specifically and personally excited about rare diseases? Yeah, it's one of those things where I wish there was a beautiful story about this this link between my evolutionary biology and, and, and seeing how that could feed into rare diseases, because obviously it does, and I think it really does help the work I do. But it's one of those cases where it was a bit of a, a, a chance occurrence that came up and brought me into this space, which is actually probably more common in the rare disease world. Um, I finished my PhD. I wanted to stay in the city I was in, and there happened to be a job with this charity that I saw that appeared that looked interesting. And that happened to be what was then known as Find a Cure, a rare disease charity. And what I was looking for at the time was um, was a role that connected me more with people um, and a role that allowed me to try and deploy and use my scientific work in a way 
that was more relevant to to the world around me. Like, like you get into a place doing a PhD sometimes where there's like one of eight people in the world that care about your topic. And I think after so many years, I've got a bit um, tired of that. So I was looking for something like this and it happened to be uh, a charity that was looking to to support people living in rare conditions. And as it so happens, you know, in hindsight, that was a, a brilliant match for someone with the, the broad scientific knowledge I've got. And yeah, that desire to, to talk to a diverse community of people really. Oh, make that yeah, totally hundred percent. That's that's something I found having done work now in the rare disease space for a while. So, so tell us a bit more about Beak. Now it's known as Beak, and it was find a cure. You know, kind of since you joined, what it's been focused on, and what its evolution has been like. Yeah, I mean, it has been a bit of an evolution over the last few years. Um, but broadly speaking, we've always had the ethos at what is now Beacon that we want to break down this isolation that people living with rare diseases feel. Um, what we know is that at the point of diagnosis, it can be a hugely scary event and an isolating event for people living with rare conditions, often because the clinician themselves will know very little about it. And people are told, you know, you're not going to meet anyone else's condition in your life. You're kind of on your own to do the best you can. But constantly the work we've seen, the work we're doing is that people forming and building patient organizations can help you know, really trigger a new community around that and help drive people forward and drive the field forward. Simply put, they can they can connect people with the same life experience uh, and that can just really make life a much more simple and bearable thing for people living with rare condition, gives them an idea of what the future might hold. But we've seen groups that have, have driven forward entire research projects that have led to new treatments being developed. We've seen groups that have put in new clinical trial guidelines, new clinical practices in place, really transforming the field as a whole. Uh, so what we want to do as an organization is help those patient groups to to form, to grow, to professionalize their work. And we, we try and do that by providing accessible training uh, to provide abilities to connect with other people, whether that's in patient groups or in the, the life sciences space that can help them do the job. And hopefully to help them build their confidence and knowledge and skills to, to really push things forward. So um, it's it's quite broad work. It's really interesting work, and, and it intersects with that that societal side of things right through to the in depth details of research and how you can actually help people contribute to research in a meaningful way. Yeah, no, totally. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, you mentioned a couple of groups that have had success being part of Beacon. You know, that was actually one of the questions I was going to ask you. Is um, you know, we know Nick Thoreau's story with Alcaptanuria, which is a tremendous one. Um, but what are some other examples of groups uh, specifically that you guys work with and, and things that they've achieved in the process of, uh, of being part of the group? Yeah, it's it's the specific group thing is always a really hard thing to think back on. You, you start looking back through the groups you've worked with and just seeing what breadth there is. I mean, we work with over over 250 groups in a year last year, which is which is brilliant diversity. And, and when I look back, there's a few different things you see, you know, there are just the formation of new patient groups is really exciting. So there's a there's a group recently uh, we worked for a few years called Stargardt's Connected. So it's tied to an ultra rare condition called Stargardt's syndrome, formed by a mother of a boy who was diagnosed, and you know that usual story wanted to do something different to support the condition and to limit the the visual degeneration he was likely to experience. So we were really pleased that she joined the mentoring program and, and through that program founded a new patient group since then has been helping to fund research, to drive things forward, to build a new community, which is brilliant. And last last week, I think it was a week, a couple of weeks ago, was awarded the uh, the Prime Minister's Points of Light Award here in the UK. So recognised for her role in founding this charity and driving the landscape forward by the UK Prime Minister, which is a really exciting journey, which probably has spanned four or five years. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good way to come. Um, we've got multiple different groups now forming different patient registries you know trying to provide real 
uh, clear captured data and information on the, the life history of people living with their conditions. So uh, Timothy Syndrome Alliance pops out to my mind that have recently been putting this together and actually built a, a brilliant video about the diagnostic experience for Timothy Syndrome patients uh, as part of Rare Disease Day campaign but have been growing this registry for the last year as well. And this is an ultra rare condition with tens of patients probably globally. There's another group we do a lot of work with called Annabelle's Challenge, uh, who focus on the rare disease type 4 Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And they've, they've done a huge amount of work in the fundraising space, had a really big community fundraising effort, but have recently been pushing through their work directly with the NHS to build an improved service for people living with VEDS, vascular Ehlers-Danlos, um, but then also to begin to push research forward in that space as well. And um, all of the, these are examples of people we've done a little bit of work with here and there, whether through mentoring, whether through workshops, some of them have trained for us and have been trained by us. And um, it's it's fantastic to see that kind of progress and how little parts of the work and engagement we've had have, have helped them move forward. Um, but, you know, I could I could talk for many hours about it, but I think it's just trying to reflect there is this breadth of 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 journey that we see from people and the fact that they learn from each other is what's really encouraging. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, um, that's one of the things I've also realized is that these stories, I mean, the actual diseases are many, in many cases, very different, but the stories are very similar, both from the shock of the diagnosis or the diagnostic odyssey that we talk about four to nine years on average to get diagnosis all the way to creating a, a you know, a, a clinical trial uh, for different drug candidates so being able to learn from each other and get that hope, right, that beacon of hope that we talk about is, is extremely helpful psychologically for many of these patients, too. Um, and these stories like John Crowley's story we, we had in the podcast, Nick Sorose, you know, many others, gives that hope to a lot of these groups that I'm sure you, 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 you guys do the same. Completely. And, you know, Nick's story is an amazing one. Right? And it's one you want to tell as many, as many times as possible. But it's, it's a case where things were in place and the right people were in place to drive it to this 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 point of completion. So many groups we are working with are on that, on that journey. And what we want to do is provide that support to them every step of the way, essentially. So whether they're just getting started or whether they're, they're right at the end, we want to be there to help support that. And that support the individual patients for their mental health, but also support the people doing this leadership, right? It's not easy being a, being a Nick Sorrow at times, right? You have to be able to have someone to turn to to cope with the worry of, are you going to get there? And I think a lot of the patient leaders we work with feel the, the pressure of that and the pressure of representing that, that community of people living with that same condition. And um, we're seeing more and more of them connecting with each other and sharing their experiences, despite the the great differences between the conditions themselves that they're representing, which I think is really encouraging and hopefully moves us closer to a place where there is more of a unified rare disease community rather than lots of different rare diseases, which I think is something we'd love to, love to get to in the not so distant future. Totally especially given how many people are directly affected, right? The, the estimate is over 300 million people around the world have the 7,000 plus rare diseases directly, plus, you know, hundreds of million more family members who, who have to help um, with the care. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about, you know, so what, what's interesting about Find a Cure is that um, Elsevier started working with your organization when it was Find a Cure many years ago. Uh, one yes. of our colleagues, Tim Hochter, and I think there was a, a, a hackathon done uh, together with your team. Um, and then now we're back to working together now that you're beacon. Uh, and so I'm just wondering, um, you know, from your perspective, how has that collaboration gone and what are some things uh, that we as like a global publisher, educator, research group can be doing to further support the rare disease community that in, in your eyes? 
That's a, that's a really good question. I think it's always been nice to see a company of the size and scale of Elsevier being interested in the residency space and and what is frankly a small charity. You know, particularly when we first started that collaboration, we were a very small team, uh, and I think the ability to access the the wealth of information, knowledge, and skills that exists within that company for an organisation like ours and a field like ours is really exciting. So it was a real it was a real pleasure to work on that and see what potential there was in that kind of data and the analytics and the, and the, the the skills of the people within the company at the time, and it helps us think a lot about some of the drug repurposing projects we were trying to trying to facilitate at that time and, and begin to move those forward. Um, I think you know now at this stage, interestingly, we're at a place where this topic of repurposing is is, is coming up again and becoming more prominent and more prevalent. And I think the role that companies like Elsevier can play is is only bigger because you, you can nucleate this this community. You have access to a, a wealth of information and a wealth of connections around the world and can help to bring those people together to drive more projects forward and just highlight that importance of this topic of rare disease. Um, we touched on already this concept of bringing a united rare disease community. I always think that there's no reason rare diseases can't be thought of like cancer right i mean we we think of cancer as a single challenge we're trying to beat it's it's hundreds and hundreds of different conditions that happen to have the same broad expression and we we try and tackle in that same way and there's a unified a way to attack it and rare disease can be that same thing it's thousands of different rare diseases with different effects biologically but fundamentally most of them are genetic and most of them have very similar impacts on the, the daily life and, and life experience of being living with a rare condition as a patient and if we can begin to tackle those problems as a unified cause we're going to we're going to push things forward much better and companies like Elsevier having an interest in this space I think can help spread that message and unify um, the field by highlighting connections between conditions and highlighting opportunities to push things forward and uh, highlighting the way that whether it's one good researcher or one good patient group or one good idea can really make a big change to the, the people uh, at the at the cold face or at the receiving end of that condition. Yeah, 100%. And actually, um, my next episode we're going to release after this one likely is with the new editor-in-chief of an Elsevier journal, an open access journal called Rare. So specifically creating one, just like there are journals called Cancer, Cancer Biology, we're, we're launching, we've launched uh, an open access journal called Rare that's going to have, um, you know, not just uh, I mean, research paper, original research papers, but also patient perspectives and caregiver perspectives across different rare diseases. So hopefully that'll, you know, um, get us closer to that vision you mentioned, which is with the way we think about cancer, we think about rare conditions, especially because there's so many, even though the conditions are often different, many of them are ultra rare, single, you know, uh, genetic uh, mutations or uh, single gene mutations. And that's why you get sometimes ultra rare conditions is there's, uh, you know, 20,000 genes in the body. And so any one of those could potentially be upregulated or downregulated, depending on different uh, genetic or epigenetic uh, changes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that sounds like a great initiative and, and brilliant to hear that there's different voices as part of it, because we really believe that you need to have all of the different perspectives in play and and voiced and listened to to drive things forward effectively in rare conditions. You need that patient group, you need the clinician group, you need the the academic researchers, the industry, bring that together and, and you can absolutely solve the problems that, that any given condition is facing. Totally. Um, so uh, you mentioned drug repurposing um, and you know, <laughs> one of the 
one of the people we had on the podcast a couple months ago, I just introduced you to him, I know as well, or reintroduced you, mm. is David Fagenbaum uh, from the Castleman Network and now Every Cure. You know, tell us about drug repurposing in general and then your specific work on it, uh, as well as any of the traction you're getting in Europe. Yeah, it's a, it's a big question, big topic. So David's obviously the, a, a fantastic um representative of, of rare disease of repurposing of clinicians an amazing guy to speak to and i'm looking forward to catching up with him again um repurposing for me is something i've always worked on as part of this role and it's it's very simple it's, it's recycling essentially it's finding new uses for old drugs it's finding a different way a more efficient way to use the medicines that we already have out there to affect more people and and provide more benefit to humans right and um in theory it should be a really appealing thing to happen um, but for a range of different reasons, what we've seen, particularly um, in the space where a drug's gone off patent, but it's been used, it's generic, it's widely available. It's, it's very hard, therefore, to, to generate the right scientific evidence to, to allow these drugs to be frequently used for more different types of condition. And there's, there's, a, there's a market failure there, essentially, which is very frustrating. And it, I think it, it, it can slow researching and limit opportunities for people that, that otherwise wouldn't have any form of treatment. So for me, drug repurposing is something that I think we need to be pushing more and finding more ways to drive forward, particularly because it does offer a route, theoretically and in cases in practice, to to get a treatment to people more quickly and more cheaply than you would otherwise expect to develop a whole new treatment. And it also opens, a, opens up a route which is more accessible for research by patient groups or by a small group of academics to move things forward. It can... It can allow us to work therefore in areas that are ultra rare that might not have the commercial appeal to some of the the, the the really large pharma companies so that's that's why i think it's important and as i say we've worked on this for, for quite a few years whether it's trying to think of new models to fund repurposing work whether it's trying to drive forward and raise awareness about it and over the last year we've been been part of a, a new european level consortium uh, which is called remedy for all uh, and, and this is a platform that's been set up that's trying to, to drive and, and inspire people to do more repurposing research across Europe, which is really exciting. And we're trying to provide a range of services, ideas, expertise that will hopefully uh, help to drive these projects forward in a practical way as, as well as a kind of inspirational way. So we're working with a few projects now and we've got skills in identifying repurposing opportunities. We've got patient group expertise. We've got clinical trial design expertise. We've got preclinical expertise. We've got regulatory expertise. And the idea there is if you start a research project in a rare condition with a repurposed drug, we want to help you actually make sure that if it works, it can reach the patient and not just publish a paper and then not get not not reach the patient not deliver the patient impact so it's um it's a really exciting time for repurposing because i think there's more and more of these type of projects out there the work david's been doing the work we're hoping to do for remedy for all there's a range of different groups currently now trying to explore how we can use existing drugs more effectively and a lot of that has been inspired by what we saw as a response to the covid pandemic trying to find drugs that can can solve a big emergent threat very quickly well repurposing does that and rare diseases need quick treatments as, as uh, an effective treatments and repurposing as a pathway to do that so hopefully we'll we'll, uh, we'll make a big impact we'll see what happens <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm super excited uh we're you know to not only shed more light into this and hopefully get some of our listeners excited about leading some of these projects or or participating in some of these projects there's a lot of great human capital who listen to this podcast um 
you know, hopefully will become, again, the clinicians and researchers helping rare disease communities. Um, but then the repurposing stuff, I mean, now, especially with the rise of a lot of big data and uh, AIs in the news every day, uh, I think there's so many, you know, we had Matt Might, who you may know from the Precision Medicine Institute at University of Alabama, the work his lab does, uh, obviously the work Elsevier is doing with um, Pharmapendium, Intellect, and Cybite, among others, I think is is pretty exciting really exciting and there's there's so many new ways to get new ideas now and that's that's brilliant and i think what we're hoping to do with projects like remedy for all is to connect that right those new ideas to delivering to the patient and, and crossing what they call that translational research value of death right finding a way to actually make sure we get through there to, to get a product that can reach patient which which is what we all want to see and with such great ideas coming out of so many angles if we could smooth that process we're going to be in a very different place in 20 years time which is really exciting i think for for the whole field totally totally and again part of what what we've done this year we call it the year of the zebra is because it's the 40th anniversary of the orphan drug act right that's why we uh, we even launched this initiative this year as opposed to last year or next year um and so the hope is that over the next decade when once we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the orphan drug act because of organizations like yours and initiatives remedy for all and, and every cure as well as the big data aspects around this, the, the AI developments and, you know, connecting that to directly to ScienceDirect and other scientific um, databases will hopefully go from the, you know, about less than a thousand approved drugs for rare disorders to, um, to hopefully more orders of magnitude more than that. Um, so, you know, I think uh, since we're coming up in time, I did have uh, just a couple more last, last questions. First is uh, most of our audience are, uh, current or future clinicians. And I remember when we had Nick on the podcast, Nick Soro, he was talking about um, a, a really influential clinician researcher named Dr. Ranganath at University of Liverpool, who really helped him and, and all patients uh, and family members who have the black bone disease uh, and finding that treatment for that. I'm curious, what are some things that our audience could be doing uh, as clinicians and researchers to most effectively contribute to the work Beacon does and, and the rare disease community needs? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question, a big question. Um, I think, firstly, it, I have seen in the last eight years or so working in this field that really you need, if you can get that one clinician, that one researcher with a proper dedicational interest in your rare condition, you can really move the field forward very drastically. You've got to be the right person, but uh, people like Ranga, uh, Dr. Ranganath, people like uh, Professor Tim Barrett that I know in Birmingham who've been driving forward research in Wolfram syndrome, they can go from there'd be nothing to, to to screening a drug to then setting up the first preclinical testing to drive a clinical trial that can ultimately get you to the place where there could be a treatment that rare condition. There's, there's not a huge team around them. There's there's that core person that's driving it. I think that is something to be really aware of. Um, for me, <clears throat> for the people out there in the, the medical profession, there's a few different things that, that, that you can do. Firstly, it's to try and familiarize yourself with what are the red flags for rare disease diagnosis if, if nothing else there, there, there are certain patterns you can see in it, that diagnostic odyssey that, that that get missed too easily that could say to you hang on there's something odd going on here there's something a big picture that we're missing by looking at every little thing in isolation can you identify the odd patient just going time and time again for re-diagnosis because if you can do that and intervene and push forward for some kind of genetic testing or actually a different look at this you could transform someone's Diagnostic Odyssey from a couple of years, 
well, well from, from 10 years to 20 years to, to a couple of years or, or, or a few months. And that can make a huge difference to that individual uh, and really demonstrate um, that you understand the importance of listening to that patient, listening to the person to, to get to that to that place of good diagnosis. That, that That's one thing I think anyone can do because that makes a huge step forward. And I think the other thing is, you know, if you can find that time just to, to make a little nod to rare diseases in your work, pick one condition that's in your field that no one else you've heard in your field is talking about and just learn a little bit about that. Maybe find a patient group out there that are doing on it and just seeing if you can just provide them a little bit of help, give them, give them a few hours a month just to sit on their science advisory board. You could really make a difference to that patient group uh, when no one else is paying attention. And that little bit of expertise could be transformative to that, to that rare condition. And there's so much demand on clinicians right now. There really is. But if if you can find those few hours, I think you can really transform a space in a way that's very hard for you to do in those you know, big sweeping grand health issues we're all talking about, whether that's in cancers or heart disease or whatever. Just find that one rare condition for a few hours. I think you make a real difference. Yeah, that's wonderful advice. That's really, really practical. And also we've in the clinicians we've spoken to and, and other examples that have come up on these podcasts, it's clear that those clinicians who do take the time to do that, you know, not only could they potentially discover a new way of looking at maybe the more common conditions uh, that could lead to breakthrough discoveries. I mean, we keep talking about, uh, there's so many examples of that, um, like the familial hypercholesterolemia example, leading to the development of statins, but also just as far as burnout goes and, and feeling disengaged from the work, um, you know, you have these individual discussions with rare disease parents and patients and like the, the amount of gratitude they have for, for you for doing this work is definitely more like they're the models for engaged patients and grateful patients. Um, that I think if, if other disease groups had patients as engaged or as committed to finding cures or therapies, um, we wouldn't have as many, you know, chronic conditions, um, as many people suffering from diabetes or hypertension or uh, other kind of preventable diseases. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think it, it's, um, it's a, an interest that gives back as well, right? You're going you're gonna to really get opportunities to engage with people as people to understand their personal perspective of, of condition and illness in the health system and and see how you can directly affect that very quickly. And, and uh, that must, I, I think it is quite enriching. I think those people that do latch onto rare diseases tend to get stuck there because of the experience they have and the breadth of knowledge they gain and experience they gain through doing it, which is which is exciting. There, there is no path in medicine for rare diseases, right? right? And that's that's... That's a challenge in itself, but um, I do think there's a huge amount of opportunity for people to enrich their careers and enrich their lives by by engaging. Totally. Two last questions for you. The first is, um, is there any advice you want to leave our audience with about approaching their careers in, in healthcare and research and, and medicine in general? A couple of things I thought of. I, I think, firstly, I think people are really important in the work you do and, and just they they help change the way you work they can provide that source of motivation behind what you're doing in medicine you, you, you dive into medicine or research because you want to try and help people so try and find a way to connect with that that audience as much as possible and and hear and give them a chance to tell you how you're helping and, and what help they need because that really means you can direct the work you're doing in a way that makes a lot of sense um and and then the other one is just to to try and be open to new opportunities and follow the most exciting opportunity you know i didn't plan to be in rare diseases i didn't plan to be in charities but there was a nice opportunity that came in front of me and i'm still here eight years later and enjoying life and doing something that i think matters so you really never know where opportunities could take you so if it excites you at the time trust yourself give it a go and, and dive in i'd say 
Love that. Love that for sure. Final question. Anything else uh, that we didn't cover that you want to leave our audience with? Just very briefly, I think um, for, for the work we do at Beacon, it's all about those patient groups and where they can take you. Um, I've, I've already said, you know, take your time to try and join one of those groups and help them if you can. Recognize those groups out there are, are so willing to do anything that they can do to help their their community, but they are starved of resources of time of money they're doing everything on a shoestring in, when you interact with them appreciate what effort they're putting in what time they're putting in to, to try and sacrifice most of these people are parents themselves caring for some of the rare condition and, and doing this in their free time in the evenings and weekends and and any little bit you can give to support that mission if you're in that position will be transformative to them so yeah bear that in mind in those interactions and i think you can't go wrong with how you you push forward with regards to these patient organizations awesome well those are some great great words to end on so rick thanks so much for taking the time to be with us on the podcast but more importantly for the the work you've done over many years to help um the rare disease community no thanks for the chance i've loved talking to you and yeah really really excited to see what what comes from uh, the the year of the zebra so thanks guys for sure. And with that, I'm Shiv Vivani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.